0: Good afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling and this is the Berkeley Grok Science Show.
1: That's right, it's a we we look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, green chemistry and nano antennas.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. John Savino who will discuss super volcanoes.
0: So, stay tuned for all this,
1: plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and the world famous question of the week,
1: coming right up, here, on the Berkeley Grok
0: Science Show. I'm Frank
1: Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty good. It feels like I just saw you like a few minutes ago actually. You know,
1: I I like seeing you so much that it feels like every day that I'm now with you (laughs) is like a day I've I've spent missing something important (laughs) in my life. And that being your scientific insight, what do you have for us this week?
0: Well, so apparently this whole green movement's just getting all corporate now.
1: Well, money is the color of green, isn't it?
0: Right. In fact, I think it was not too long ago, NBC had the whole green week, right? The whole peacock was green.
1: (laughs) Not much for attracting mates, green peacocks, you know. No, I know. (laughs) Generally a sign of disease, I think. (laughs) In most organisms, but I'm not sure about peacocks. What
0: if it glows?
1: Well, then it just means that it's green fluorescent protein in it. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So it turns out one of the least green companies is now becoming greener, at least their marketing is saying that it is, and that's Clorox. Clorox. A little bleach in your action.
1: I need a lot of action. <laughs> uh, bleach would help.
0: So they have a new brand of cleaners called Greenworks. Interesting, there's actually a quote from them. It says, in addition to being environmentally sound, cleaning products must clean. <laughs>
1: Imagine that—a product that actually does what it's supposed to do. So, does it clean?
0: They're selling all these detergents that they claim are doing it, and we'll see if it actually pans out or not. One of the interesting things is they bought Burt's Bees, which you know is one of the more environmentally friendly, or organic-producing companies, and you know them for their lip balm.
1: And that's environmentally friendly too, I would hope.
0: I guess a little bleaching that doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep your lips clean, right?
1: And white, apparently. <laughs>
0: So anyways, you know, companies like Clorox and Unilever and pg and are all on the uh, green buying binge. But it'll be interesting to see uh, where this goes in the next few years. And uh, maybe most products in the U.S. will be uh, organic or environmentally friendly. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of articles about the greening of corporate America, but a very nice one in a recent edition. Actually, January 21st edition of Chemical and Engineering News.
1: Well, maybe this is not quite as uh, green as the last story, but it's certainly bright. Bright. And plasma-ish.
0: Okay. So there's still some bleach action, right?
1: (laughs) You could probably photo bleach your eye pigments out. (laughs) (laughs) If you stare at this thing, <laughs> so how do you typically transmit your radio waves?
0: Oh, well, I close my eyes and I concentrate.
1: <laughs> Doesn't that send you back in time?
0: Well, you know, I, I claim to be a time traveler, but so far it only works in the forward <laughs> direction.
1: Well, who needs reverse anyway? Yeah, <laughs> it's overrated as a function. <laughs> well, it turns out that researchers have found a new method for actually using plasma to transmit radio waves.
0: Plasma. Thought these ultra-hot gases would be emitting energy at very high frequencies, right?
1: So, a group of researchers led by so, physicist. Igor Aleksif of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, has developed a method which uses a plasma tube, oscillating the charges in that tube to actually the radio waves.
0: Does the plasma take in radiation at a higher frequency and it emits it at a lower frequency?
1: That's kind of the idea. And the advantage of this, of course, is that by using the plasma, it can be a much more compact uh, antenna device rather Mm -hmm. than these very large antennas, uh, metal antennas, which are required to emit most radio waves, uh, especially at low frequencies. Okay. For example, military purposes, you don't want a very large antenna that's out in the middle of...
0: So there were some UC Berkeley researchers recently, then they were using carbon nanotubes to produce a radio receiver that was basically just a few molecules wide, like Uh on unannounced. Like the world's smallest antenna.
1: (laughs) A iPod Pico. Nano nano, right? (laughs) Oh, and another advantage of this uh, particular antenna is that it's also resistant to jamming. Interesting. Another uh, application for you military guys out there. Anyway, published in the recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. John Savino will join us to discuss supervolcanoes. So stay tuned. To the Grox Science Show. Well, cataclysmic geological events are certainly not a new phenomenon, although they may be somewhat rare. Many have heard of the threats imposed by an asteroid impact or even global warming. But the eruption of a supervolcano can be equally, if not more, devastating. And more importantly, should one be destined to erupt, there is nothing that can be done to stop it. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. John Savino. Dr. Savino is a geophysicist with a background in earthquakes and on volcanoes and has worked with the Department of Energy to review earth science research and as part of their public outreach program. Author of numerous scientific articles and reports, his new book, Supervolcano, the Catastrophic Event that Changed the Course of Human History, explores this topic for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Savino, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: Well, thank you, Charles.
1: Uh, Certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and this is certainly a very fascinating topic. What is a supervolcano? Well, how is it different from a regular volcano?
2: Perhaps the quickest way to describe a supervolcano is to point out what is the focus of the first six chapters in our book, and that is an eruption that occurred 74,000 years ago on Sumatra in Indonesia. This was called the Toba event, and it was approximately 2,800 times larger than Mount St. Helens to give a feel for what a supervolcano is. And that's in terms of ejected material. Pyroclast, these are the flows, the very hot flows, that come out of the volcano and go at extremely high speeds down the the flanks. It also includes the ash, which can circle the globe. And perhaps another way to look at it is that it was roughly... 550 to 600 times as large as Vesuvius in AD 79. So we really are looking at very massive explosive volcanoes. These are not effusive events. They are highly explosive, putting gas into the stratosphere as well as ash. And here at home, of course, we have some in California right now. As many people probably know, the Yellowstone National Park is a site of a couple of supervolcanoes in the past 2 million years. And a caldera that's situated in Long Valley, California. Not many people may know where that is exactly, but perhaps they've heard of the Mammoth Mountain Ski Resort. The Mammoth Mountain is part of the Caldera rim. That was a supervolcano that exploded 760,000 years ago. And it is one that we entertain. I hate to use the word entertain, but we pick as a scenario for erupting in the year 2015 after being excited by a great earthquake in Southern California, which, by the way, is being not predicted, but implied. a lot of deformation going on in Southern California that something will happen within the next, we don't know, tomorrow, 10 years, 30 years, but it could be significant displacement, 20 to 30 feet. So we have an earthquake initiating in Southern California, a great earthquake, and that in turn triggering the Long Valley Caldera in a super eruption. And among other things, I'm an inhabitant of Las Vegas, and one of the other things this super volcano does is put the lights out along the strip for the very first time. And we can see some stars that we haven't seen for a long time around here. That's just to give a feel for what a super volcano is. Now, we chose to focus on the Toba event 74,000 years ago because it had a very drastic and very important effect on the human population. Namely, it is thought that it resulted in a reduction of the human population from something like 100,000 people to less than 10,000, and in fact, probably 1,000 breeding pairs. So it caused what a professor at Illinois refers to as a human bottleneck, where we came very close to extinction, and while we survived, at least our ancestors survived, our genetic makeup is amazingly alike. And the 6 to 7 billion people that exist today, it is quite shocking that there is so little diversity in the mitochondrial DNA, as they refer to it, which harks back to this cataclysmic event, the Toba superuption 74,000 years ago. That was the main effect of this super event and probably the second largest that we know of. And that's an important caveat on anything in this field. It's a relatively young field. They are still discovering what they call calderas that could have been super eruptions in the past. And one of the largest, about 29 million years ago, in fact, the largest that we know of, even exceeding Toba, occurred in Colorado. So it's it's a little peculiar that the western U.S. has a frequency of these events.
1: Is it due to its proximity near the so-called ring of fire? Because stress is there. Yeah.
2: Yes, especially when we go back 29 million years ago, it, there was probably a, a subducting plate in the vicinity of Colorado at that time because most of the supervolcanoes are indeed associated with subduction zones. Huh. That's where the oceanic plate is diving beneath a, a continental-type plate. Or, in the case of Yellowstone, A continental hotspot, a melting anomaly in the mantle. That is what we believe is the cause for all the volcanism supervolcanoes in the Yellowstone National Park.
1: For the most part, it's uh, all these tectonic plates sliding together that creates most of the forces. Yes,
2: Hmm. that's exactly right.
1: Yes. So you you mentioned this uh, population bottleneck, which is a very interesting idea. What evidence is there that this actually occurred and that the the event correlates with this so-called bottleneck?
2: Most of the evidence primarily is the lack of diversity Hmm. in the mitochondrial DNA. The people who have been studying that have just been overwhelmed by this fact that there should have been a great deal more diversity. And when they track it back the mitochondrial DNA, it points to something drastic that happened to the population just about the time of Toba.
1: You also suggest that the supervolcanoes could possibly erupt again. You mentioned a couple of them. I'm wondering, are there uh, ones that geologists are particularly interested in and are studying uh, actively?
2: I would say that one that is mentioned quite a bit, people probably very much aware of this, is the Yellowstone Caldera Mm -hmm. erupting again. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the subject of quite a few TV documentaries, also books. And yet, in our book, we chose to have a scenario where Long Valley erupts rather than Yellowstone. We aren't saying that Yellowstone can't. Mm -hmm. But given a great earthquake in Southern California, it is much closer to the Long Valley Caldera than the Yellowstone. And what we have observed from previous Reasonably large Southern California earthquakes, like 10 years ago or so, when they go off, when they rupture, they do indeed excite activity in the caldera at Long Valley. All of a sudden, micro-earthquake activity starts to increase. Deformation starts to increase. That is, ground goes up and down. Also, carbon dioxide starts to leak out in greater quantities at Long Valley. And the fault that we're thinking might rupture in a not-too-distant future in Southern California and about a magnitude-8 earthquake is only 280 miles from the Long Valley caldera, Mm -hmm. versus almost 800 miles from Yellowstone. Mm -hmm.
1: What would be the predicted effect uh, worldwide of uh, such an eruption?
2: If we scale it according to TOBA, our Long Valley eruption wouldn't quite be as we don't believe, as large as Toba. The last time Long Valley erupted was 760,000 years ago and it was maybe three times smaller than Toba. Toba resulted in what scientists have called a volcanic winter where the global temperature was lowered by something like between 5 and 10 degrees Fahrenheit. One always has to talk about a range because there's a lot of imprecision in any of these estimates. And if you lower the global temperature, the mean global temperature by that much, there are very drastic effects that are going to happen. And there's one other thing that is coming out of fairly recent studies from Yellowstone, Long Valley, and Toba ash. And that is that we think once these supervolcanoes occur, they can impact significantly the ozone layer, that is significant depletion. Once that happens, well, we know what the problems are there. UVB radiation comes through, and we are subject to more skin cancer, cataracts, and many other problems. And the thing is that this radiation does not only affect humans, it affects all animal life and plant life. So there's two very significant impactors lowering temperature by quite a bit, and the depletion of the ozone layer.
1: Um, In your book, you make the point that nothing really could be done to stop such an eruption. What could be done to prepare for such an eruption?
2: That is really a tough one. I think the principal thing would be if we can detect premonitory signals, which I have serious doubts about because we have not experienced a cycle We have not gone through the preliminary signals from a supervolcano. The last one actually was in New Zealand 26,500 years ago. So we don't have a baseline of what to expect. But if we could luck out, it would be evacuation of what we would expect to be downwind areas of the primary ashfall. That first, you have to get out of that area because water supplies would be contaminated and that would be a a major hazard to begin with. Food supplies would also be contaminated, but obviously we can't survive without potable water for very long.
1: So what is the current work being done by geologists to monitor each of these potential sites?
2: Very intensive monitoring going on at Yellowstone, Long Valley, the area and the places in New Mexico are also being monitored, but not quite as extensively as, as Yellowstone and Long Valley. Around the world, we have satellites looking at what we think are calderas, except in many cases they're in extremely remote, hard-to-get-to areas, so we don't have any in-caldera or rim-caldera measurements like seismometers detecting the level of earthquake activity, other things detecting ground deformation, any kind of gas leaks, CO2, anything like that. We're really, in my mind, kind of deficient in that sense. And we could be surprised very easily.
1: Uh, I'm curious, even with the monitoring that you do have, how much notice do you think you would have before one of these super volcanoes erupts?
2: My honest answer is I don't know. And the folks that operate the Long Valley monitoring system wrote a paper that was published about six months ago, and you know, basically said that it's it's our lack of experience with a supervolcano cycle. You know, we do have some experience with earthquake cycles. Some mm-hmm. we could still use a lot more. What happens before a great earthquake? Mm-hmm the aftershock sequence that happens after. But when it comes to supervolcanoes, we don't know. And one of the things they're really concerned about, especially in Long Valley, in 1980, they had a series of magnitude 6 earthquakes occur on the southern rim of the caldera there. Those are fair-sized earthquakes for a volcanic caldera. And the the United States Geological Survey put out an alert. And that alert, The people living there, the businesses, the realtors, really got upset about this because nothing came of it, no kind of eruption. So we're faced with the problem, put out these alerts, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. The people are going to become, hey, these people are just crying wolf all the time. And in fact, the uh, folks up in Mammoth on the rim of the Long Valley Caldera, really got PO'd at the USGS. They actually referred to them as the US Guessing Society, <laughs> rather than Geological Society. So that, that is going to be a problem.
1: But so wh- what do you think will be required then to have a better understanding of the supervolcanic process?
2: I think the kind of monitoring that, that is going on both at Long Valley and Yellowstone, where it's covering a large area, it's covering a host of measurements, Not just any one. Like I say, they're looking at ground deformation, gas escapes. It it has to be a combined approach like that. But the problem they recognize and that they address is that even after all of these measurements, if things start to happen, will it just be, let's say, an ordinary eruption or will it be a super eruption? We don't know.
1: Well, I mean, it does sound like a very uh, troubling problem, but I guess we are running slightly out of time. I'm wondering if you maybe have any final closing words regarding this whole issue. All
2: I can say is to monitor, especially here in the western U.S., where we know there is what I would call unrest, significant unrest, in two of our big Caldera systems. We know they're not very happy, and someday they will erupt whether they present us with obvious signals or not. We, we have to keep monitoring. I would say, in, in particular, if earthquake activity starts to get really significant in terms of magnitude, frequency, if we start to hear so-called harmonic tremor, where we think magnet's coming up cracks, then I think the alert should be given out and people should go ahead and evacuate. Might, Might be a false alarm, but best we could do. Um.
1: Dr. Savino, I do want to thank you very much for joining us and talking about your new book, Supervolcano, the catastrophic event that changed the course of human history. All right.
2: Thank you, Charles.
1: And we're just listening to Dr. John Savino discussing supervolcanoes. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
0: Now I don't know
1: I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where I'm gonna go on the volcano. Ground she's moving
0: under me. Tidal waves out. I come down so-
1: To play a game, it is the Grokatron 5000. Today's topic from the Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue, the topic is super volcanic or dormant. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're super volcanic or dormant. Dr. Spino, you ready to play a game? Okay, okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Person number one, super volcanic or dormant, Microsoft founder Bill Gates.
2: I would have to say uh, super volcanic because he's at the forefront of technology and software Mm -hmm. and applications. Now, perhaps not just in the software anymore. He's getting into hardware items.
1: (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, Number two is the real estate mogul, Donald Trump.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think he's as super volcanic as he thinks he is. (laughs) So I would have to – there's no in-between – Dormant (laughs) versus...
1: Maybe slightly smoldering.
2: (laughs) Slightly, yes. I just can't give him a super volcanic. I I love listening to him because he's so caught up on himself. Anyway, I'll say dormant.
1: (laughs) All right, number three is the heiress, Paris Hilton.
2: Oh, God, she should be dormant. (laughs) It would benefit everybody. It's a shame we spend so much time paying attention to her antics, but go ahead.
1: Next. Uh, number four is uh, the San Francisco Giants home run slugger Barry Bonds. This may surprise some people, but I,
2: yeah, super volcanic. Yeah. I, I give him a lot of credit. I think he's still blasting home runs without benefit of anything. <laughs> Allegedly anything, right? Um, and he demonstrates a lot of moxie just by showing up at a game, especially out of town. <laughs>
1: All right, and, and finally, number five, supervolcanic or dormant, the President of the United States, George Bush. How about extinct? <laughs> is That's not a category? Uh, it, it should be a category. We could make it a category for him. <laughs> but let's use that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Dr. Savino, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing your game. And, of course, uh, your new book is Supervolcano, the Catastrophic Event that Changed the Course of Human History. Again, thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, and now here's the crazy Russian with the answer to this week's question week. Da,
1: da, da, is not the question of the week. It is question of week. A week? Come!
0: Sorry, we don't, we don't hear in
1: space. Question? Puny week. man, I crush you like little grape. What the question you have for me?
0: What's going on in the quantum universe, man? Uh,
1: quantum universe. You want to know about Heisenberg uncertainty principle?
0: Well, you know, I'm... Not certain, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, you will be. If you know position, no, no velocity. No velocity, no position!
0: <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.